morning. You can turn to the book of Esther. We will be there in uh, a moment. Book of Esther, the Old Testament. I was debating being a University of Memphis, albeit when I went there, Memphis State grad. I was debating, since they literally just tipped off in their championship game in the NIT tournament, so I was debating I felt like we should not have a sermon today. Now, many of you would agree with that, that we should just all watch the University of Memphis play. But uh, God wouldn't let me do that. So if, if they're winning, just you know, feel free to scream out amen. And I'll, make, I'll think, it's, uh, I'll think you are into the sermon. So I'm just glad they were able to win some games. It's kind of cool to see. What I want to do today, here we are, Palm Sunday. And we're celebrating what... The church has called throughout history Passion Week for our, our Lord Jesus beginning on the triumphal Sunday, first day of the week. He rides into Jerusalem and they're, they're screaming, Hosanna to the Lord, praise him. And four days later, what are they screaming? Crucify him. And so as the church leading up the next Sunday we celebrate his resurrection from the dead and Resurrection Sunday. What a magnificent moment it is in church history to celebrate that. But the reality is we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ every waking moment because he gives us new life. He raises us to new life in him that lasts forever. So when you think about Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem as the Messiah, leading to His death on the cross, the darkest day in the history of the human race. We call it Good Friday. We'll be having a communion service together this Friday at our Bartlett campus. We'll come together as the body of Christ and celebrate the death of Jesus Christ. Yet, that great moment, the first day of the week, a week from today, when we would celebrate as the church, Jesus walked out of that tomb, physically arose from the dead to send a message, I'm exactly who I said I was. I am the great I am. I am God. I am he who holds the keys to death and Hades, the abode of the dead. I am he who has conquered sin and death, which resulted from sin. I am the conqueror of the two worst things a human being can ever face, being a sinner And dying, I'm conquering that for you, for I love you. And we celebrate that as the body of Jesus Christ. We are his church. We are in the age of his church. Until he returns, God has allowed us and given us the privilege of carrying the gospel to the world and to say to the world, it's not what you think it is. Jesus is not who you think he is. Many people don't even know. Even in Memphis, the buckle of the Bible Belt, there are large numbers of people who really don't even know who Jesus Christ is. 
or have a wrong idea of who he is, wherever that idea may have come from, sometimes even from a church. Maybe they had a horrible experience somewhere along the line by a church leader. It happens all the time. Or just by a group of people in a church, not necessarily leaders. Maybe in, in a home situation, abusive. But even in a church, as we've seen graphically this year, spiritual abuse can even take place by spiritual leaders. Yet Jesus Christ never did any of those things. All he did was come, willingly allow himself to be tortured to death. Philippians puts it this way. Paul said he humbled himself. I love that little phrase. If you'll notice on your handout, we're talking about in the book of Esther, in chapters 5 and 6, the idea of being humbled by God or being humble before God. And that God resists the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. And one of the things I learned years ago, and it helped me so much as a leader, as a young man in my 30s, and I was taught this by an older believer, that the only thing, the, the number one thing that God's looking for for you, Randy, if you're going to lead in the church, is you have to be humble. We mentioned that last week. You have to be. Because if you're not humble, then you're coming across as proud or arrogant. And what we're seeing in the book of Esther, that picture, you don't see the name of God ever mentioned, not one time. What you see is the providential hand of God orchestrating what are seeming coincidences. We'll see that in a moment. To work out his will to fulfill his Abrahamic covenant and to bring the Messiah and that he is God, that he is in charge, that he is in control. And what he wants from us is not to be like Haman, arrogant, proud, and assuming that I'm somebody. What he wants from us is to be humble and to stand before him and say, Lord, please show me grace. You, know, you see it with Esther, the picture not necessarily her personally, but the picture. And Lord, we're without hope. And even in Mordecai, Lord, we, we don't know what to do. You don't see him calling out to God. But yet you see God saying, I promised you, the Jewish people, I would do something, and I will do it. Sometimes in spite of us, God does what he's going to do. But he always wants us to understand, I'm at work. We sang about it today beautifully. We sang about victory several times. I learned years ago that old cliche, we don't fight to victory, we fight from victory. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he conquered. That's why I love the verse in John 8. The truth will set you free. You're free indeed when the Son, who is the truth, sets you free. And so as believers... We look at the Passion Week of Jesus Christ, and you look, and I encourage you this week, as leading up to next Sunday, as we celebrate Resurrection Sunday together as the body of Christ, I encourage you this week to go read the gospel accounts of that week, particularly as it draws toward the end of the week, and see what Jesus went through, the agony of the Garden of Gethsemane. It's, it's, um, it's just horrific. And then the torture that he went through. 
and he's sweating blood, and he's being beaten where he's unrecognizable and his vital organs are exposed. He didn't have to do that. He humbled himself. It is clearly a week of passion in so many ways. And when he says from the cross, those things that he, that he cries from the cross, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quote from Psalms. It's the only time in the Gospels you hear Jesus referred to God and not calling Father. That's how much he loved me. That humbles me. Should. It doesn't always, it, it should. Think about that Easter dawn of a new day, literally. The dawn of a new day historically. And I think in my life as a believer that every day when I wake up, when I'm usually up before sunrise and it's because I'm old and can't sleep, taking medicine and getting ready for another day and as, as I'm opening the windows and the sun is coming up, I'm constantly reminded, and we've talked about this before, that it's God saying, here's the dawn of another day, Randy, another new day for you to live as a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. How are you going to attack this day for Jesus? How are you going to be different today? Because we're raised, as I said earlier, to new life in Christ. So look at your handout. As we think back now, we're going to go back to another Passover. We're looking at Passover week. In the life of Jesus Christ, we're thinking about that on Palm Sunday. And he actually told the disciples, I have urgently and anxiously looked forward to this Passover. That the greatest moment in the history, this Passover. I was literally watching basketball yesterday. I love college basketball. And I watched the Tigers game and I was watching Arkansas's game. And they're in this, they were in the studio. It was halftime. I think it was the Arkansas game. And it was halftime. They were talking about the game. It's just different people. One of the guys was Jewish. And he made a Passover reference and it flew over the other three guys' head. And he circled back around and he said, y'all missed my Passover reference, didn't you? And so here we are. Even, even here they are. I guess they were sitting in New York in their studio and they were referencing Passover. And they, three of them didn't even know what he was talking about. We as a culture, we're celebrating, the Jews are celebrating Passover Literally what we're selling, we call it Easter, but what, you know what we're celebrating as Christians? The Passover, and we understand that Jesus was the Messiah, both for the Jews and the Christ of the Gentiles. He is the Lamb of God. And that's what Passover is about. And so as we think about that last Passover Jesus celebrated on earth, now we go back 500 plus years to the book of Esther, we mentioned this last week, but I want to set the stage for where we are today. As this is happening, as Haman is getting the decree from Xerxes to wipe out the Jewish nation through every Jew in Persia to be eliminated, it's Passover. And what Jews should be doing, those who, who understood the memorial, eternal, perpetual memorial that God established, told Moses when he took him out of out of Egypt and the Exodus, this is to be an everlasting memorial. I have set you free and you're headed to the promised land, a picture of salvation and ultimately glorification, final salvation, going home. They should have been celebrating that. Instead, they're looking at a death sentence on them and they don't know where to turn. 
And so they turn to Esther. And God is going to use Esther to save them because the Messiah is going to come through the Jews. So as we're thinking about where we are in the book of Esther, look again at your handout. The favor of God versus the resistance of God. Being humble before God or being humbled by God. That ultimately is the decision every human being has to make. And what we, need to, what we understand as Christians is that it's our time to share the gospel. It's a difficult time, but it's our time, and it's fantastic to realize that God has us here for this moment. And you see the verses on there, but I want you to just focus in for a moment on James 4, 6. There on your handout. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humbles. So last time we were looking at the favor of God toward Esther, she's standing before the king, and, and he gives, he said, you can have whatever you want, chapter 5. She said, uh, I want to invite you and Haman to a banquet. We talked about all that last week. And so you get to part two. We're looking at the fury of Haman when he finds out what's going on. We see his angry, he was angry, see his arrogance. I want you to drop down with me to verse 12 of chapter 6. Excuse me, of chapter 5, verse 12. Look at the assumption of Haman. Moreover, Haman said, besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared. And tomorrow I'm again invited by her along with the king. See the word moreover at the beginning of verse 12? What you're seeing here is the arrogance we talked about and the pride of Haman. Queen Esther has invited no one but me to a banquet. Just me, her, and Xerxes. This is where we left off last week. And she did it not only once, but twice. Look at me, look at me, look at me. You ever had a little kid that was like that? You run around? They will, they'll get there, just trust me. Look at me, look at me, look at me. It's all about me. That's where Haman is. That, joking about that Mac Davis song last week. He loved to look in the mirror because he gets better looking every day. Some of us don't have that problem. Some of us avoid the mirror as much as we can. Haman didn't. Haman's entire life was wrapped up in whom? Haman. That's all he cared about. That arrogance. That I am God. Nobody's going to tell me what. I'll even, I even manipulate the king of Persia, the emperor, the most powerful man in the world, does my bidding. He might be king. He might be emperor. But I'm the prime minister, and he's pretty much going to do what I tell him to do. I am special. Now look at verse 13. Verse 13, yet, I love the words these verses begin with, moreover, despite all of this, man, I'm cool. And yet, despite how cool I am and how powerful I am and what I am the man, yet, all this, everything he's been talking about, invited to the banquets and all, everything, all the power that he has, all of this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Despite where I am, despite what I have, despite the power I yield, I can wield, despite the fact that I get exercised to do whatever I want, despite my lofty status, despite I've got everything a man could want. And I am not happy because Mordecai is sitting out there at that gate. I want you to pause for a moment and reflect on this. Haman, as far as he knows, he's gotten everything he could ever hope for at this point. And he's not happy. 
you to pause for a moment and reflect on that, and let's apply it. Isn't that where the human race is without Jesus Christ? In many cases, I get everything I want. Some, some have. Money, power, relationships, whatever I want. And yet, there's a vacuum deep in my soul. There's a hole. Great teachers of the faith called it that only God can fill. Because that's intentionally the way God made us, that we need him, that we can't understand life without him. It's called a God-shaped vacuum that only his presence can fill. That's why a believer, one who knows Jesus Christ, can be happy with less money than his neighbor because money's not his God. He can, he can be happy with not being the one that everyone just falls down before and wants to be like because he's a servant of people, because Jesus is his God, his Savior. Moreover, yet I'm not satisfied. You know the old saying, how much money does it take to make a rich man happy? It's a little bit more. Haman had everything, but yet he wasn't happy. He wasn't satisfied. I want Mordecai dead. We've seen it over and over. I want Mordecai, and I want all his people dead. Yet he's sitting out there at the gate like there's no problem. And there's a death sentence on his head. I don't get it. I'm not satisfied. The hate, the venom, and the vengeance is in his heart. And he can't be satisfied. Verse 14, his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows be made 50 cubits high and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet and the thing pleased Haman. So he had the gallows made. Here's their solution. You build a massive gallows. If you look at the, the uh, structure, it's going to be 75 foot high gallows. You ask Xerxes to hang Mordecai on it. By the way, what, is Xerxes always just, as far as we've seen, does he just do what Haman asked him to do? Yeah. He, he said, don't bother me with that. You do whatever you want to do. So build the gallows. We've already ripped the death sentence. And ask him to hang Mordecai on it. And when they use the word hang, it's not in the, so much in the sense like we think hanging. Hanging to them in Persia, you would put him 75 feet high, and then you would impale him. Like a whale. Gross and disgusting. And what does Mordecai say? I mean, excuse me, Haman say? Hey, that sounds good. That thing pleased him. I'll impale, I'll have Mordecai impaled by Xerxes, murdered. And then, after that, I can merrily go to the banquet and enjoy myself. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we were looking at this. After he got Xerxes to sign the decree that all these people were going to be just wiped out, what does the Bible say that Haman and Xerxes did? They went and started drinking, having a good time after signing the death sentence for all these people. Xerxes didn't even know what was going on. So Haman's assumption at this point is this. I'll get rid of Mordecai because Xerxes is going to do what I ask him to do 
And not only will I get rid of him, but I'll be able to publicly humiliate him by having him impaled on a 75-foot high gallows. After all, I am Haman. Now look at point three on your handout. And let's look at how God shows favor to Mordecai. I want you to see the picture. It's not so much Mordecai. It's a picture God wants us to see. Haman is going to be humble, and Mordecai is going to see the grace of God. It's only one way or the other. You're either going to be humble before God, or you're going to be humbled by God. What you see in, cha- in this part of chapter, what you see in chapter six, is a series of seemingly trivial, unconnected circumstances. And this is the message of the book of Esther. We talked about last week. Christians don't believe in luck. We believe in the providential care and hand of our God, that he's always working, we've sung about it even today, that he's always working good on our behalf, even though it doesn't seem like it in the moment. So what you're going to see in chapter 6 is these different things just seem like unconnected, trivial, but yet what they're doing, God is setting this up to save the Jewish people. So the first thing you notice in verse 1 is the timing of God, 6-1. That night the king, Xerxes, could not sleep. So, no, so one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bichthana and Tirish, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay kings on King Xerxes. Then the king said, well, or uh, to assassinate him, verse 3, the king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, nothing that's been done for him. Now notice the progression. Number one, Xerxes can't sleep. How many of you had trouble sleeping last night? I didn't because I love storms. I, I'm, I know I'm strange. But I love storms. I don't want anybody to get hurt. And I don't want anybody's property to get damaged. But I love to listen to thunder. I would love to stand outside, but Mary had a rope tied around my foot, like the, the high priest going to the Holy of Holies and said, you're not going to go... Normally, I'd have, this is the truth, I, I guess it's okay to admit this, I love to open my garage and just sit there and watch lightning, the thunder. The only time I've ever been scared is I was playing golf a couple of times and lightning struck the golf course, not near me, somewhere on the golf course, and you could feel it running through the ground. I was with two teenagers one time, we were out at Orgel playing, and we were just walking the golf course playing, playing golf, and, and I had an umbrella, and I was letting one of them hold it. It had been sprinkling. And, and I mean, this thunderstorm just came up. And lightning hit somewhere on the golf course. And you could feel it running through the ground. And all I saw was my umbrella hitting the ground. And those two guys sprinting for the clubhouse. And leaving the old man standing out there all by himself in the middle of this thunderstorm. And I love to just watch storms. And last night was a good one. And just pray, you know, you don't want anybody. My daughter lives in Nashville now, and I get pretty bad up there. And, and she texted, she, they were at their neighbor's house, and they, they don't have a basement, and their neighbor did, and they were in their ne- neighbor's basement because it, it looked bad. And it was, it was bad in Nashville. And sometimes we have trouble sleeping. I want you to see what's going on here. Xerxes can't sleep. So he says, bring me something to read. They bring him the book of the Chronicles and read it to him. I want you to pause with me for a moment. This is the most powerful man in the world. He can't sleep. And so they bring to him something to read. They don't bring him like a novel. They don't bring him something like a sports biography. They don't bring him something like you would enjoy reading. They bring him a history book and start reading to him history. Is that probably what, maybe that'll put you to sleep. I don't know. 
that's probably not what, what, you know, if I'm going to read a book in the middle of the night, it's probably not going to be the history of the country. It's going to be some innocuous novel that's going to put me to sleep. It's the hand of God. He's, he can't sleep. They start reading to him, and they start reading to him in the area that's talking about when they were going to assassinate him, and this guy Mordecai saved his life. It just happened accidentally, coincidentally, they just happened to read the story of when Mordecai saved you from assassination, Xerxes. You think that's what happened? That it just happened to be that? No. So they read it to him. He learns about Mordecai. And logically, which is what would have been done in Persia, anyone that had saved the king's life would have been honored with a lot, been really rewarded. So he says, what did we do to honor Mordecai? Again, Xerxes is, is out of it about 90% of the time. But he said, well, this guy saved my life. Well, what did we do for him? You know, did we give him a big banquet? Did we give him a bunch of money? Did we give him some land? Well, what did we do for him? And he probably knew who Mordecai was because he was a, a semi-official. He wants to honor him. And they haven't done anything. All right, verse 4. So the king said, who is in the court? So we can bestow honor on Mordecai. Let's get this taken care of. Who's in the court? Haman had just entered. Hmm. The outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he prepared for him. Because he had his plan together. Oh, oh Haman doesn't let anything uh, settle. So he'd already come up with his plans. First thing, he, he's going to go to Xerxes just as soon as he can. So soon, first thing in the morning, he's there waiting to talk to Haman about impaling Mordecai and killing him. Unbeknownst to him, what does Xerxes want to do? Wait a minute, Xerxes wants to honor the very guy you want me to impale? Haman? Bit of a confusion. He just happens to be in the court. No, he's there because God... Something that he's doing. I want you to pause with me again for a moment. This verse right here, where Haman is standing in the court and Xerxes wants to honor Mordecai, Haman wants to have him murdered. This is a pivotal moment, not just in this book, but in the history of the Jews and in the history of the human race. Prior to chapter 6, Haman is on the rise, he's getting all the glory. And now it's going to turn to Mordecai, and Haman is going to end up getting hanged himself because God keeps his word. Notice the irony now in verse 5. The king's servant said to him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, well, let him come in. Haman is in the court. There, obviously, to suggest, we talked about Xerxes hanging Mordecai, impale him. Now, Haman is the highest official in the land next to Xerxes. So he's there. Now notice the humbling that results for Haman starting at verse 6. He's going to be trapped and won by his own pride. Verse 6. So Haman came in and the king asked him. Now Haman's coming in. Xerxes has asked for him. He's saying, I'm about to get what I want concerning Mordecai. Both men are thinking that. Haman came in to the king asking, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Do you see the irony here? Haman said, all right, 
Not only have I got everything I wanted up to this point, but now the king wants to honor me even more. Because who in the world would he want to honor more than me? The essence of arrogance and his pride, that he's trapped by it. The king delights to honor. I want you to notice verse 6. The king delights to honor. Verse 7. Haman answered the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor. Verse 7. Drop down to verse 9. And let his robe and a horse be delivered to the hand of the one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Verse 11. So Haman took the robe and the horse, he arrayed Mordecai, and he led him on horseback through the city square, proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. I wanted to read all the verses because I want you to, it's important in Hebrew, when you see something repeated over and over like this, the emphasis is there. This is all about whom the king delights to honor, whom the king delights to honor, whom the king delights to honor, whom the king delights to honor. Yes, it's Xerxes, and when Xerxes decides he delights to honor someone, it will be done. But I want to make sure you see the spiritual application. Whom does God, the king of kings, delight to honor? The one who will humble himself before God. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. Jesus said, I came to serve and to die. He was the king of kings. We are the servants of God and we are the priests of God. Every believer is a priest. And we humble ourselves before God so that God honors us. Think about when Stephen, the first recorded Christian martyr, died. And I love that story in Acts. And Saul of Tarsus is standing there. Not an accident. God had a plan. Saul of Tarsus is standing there holding his clothes and agreeing with him being stoned to death. I know we talked about this, but here's the one thing maybe we didn't mention. As Stephen dies, he says, forgive them, echoing Jesus' words. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And the Bible says he looked up, and who did he see? Jesus, standing to welcome him. If you understand scripture, and you understand, like the book of Hebrews tells us, after Jesus purged our sins, he, what's the next phrase? Sat down at the right hand of authority and majesty in the universe. He sat down because his work of atonement as the high priest was finished. The high priest could never sit down in the Holy of Holies. Jesus sat down. But he stood up to honor Stephen. There's a message there. Stephen humbled himself before God, and God said to him, well done. That's all he wants from me. He doesn't want perfection because guess what? He's not going to get it. What he wants from me is to be Christ-like. He declares me righteous in Christ, and then he wants me to live righteously by Christ in me, my hope of glory, knowing that I'm not perfect, but I want to be. Haman is the exact opposite. Haman is only interested in Haman. He's going to find out the hard way that his pride is going to destroy him. I'm going to read you some information I found this week talking about just pride in Scripture. Let's read you a few quotes. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. I am God. Pride is essentially competitive. It gets no pleasure out of having something 
And Haman is a perfect picture of this. It gets no pleasure out of having something. It gets its pleasure out of having more than the other person. Okay, I've got a car, but I want to make sure you don't have one. I've got a tremendous... Haman had everything a man could want other than he wasn't the king. And yet, he hated Mordecai so much. He wanted him to have nothing. Pride has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Think about Satan. Why was he cast out of heaven in the first place? He was an an exalted angel. He was like a worship leader. Why did God toss him and his followers out of heaven? Because he said, I will have my throne above that of God. I will ascend. I will. I will. Pride. What did he tell Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? The original sin was committed. How did he convince them to sin? He said, God has not told you the complete truth. He's told you if you eat that fruit, you'll die. That's not really what he means. What he means is, if you eat that fruit, your eyes are going to be open. You're going to be like him. He doesn't want that. They looked at that fruit and said, what? It's good. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. I want it. I won't be like God. Pride. But pride always means enmity. It is enmity between man and man, but enmity between, toward God. But in God, you come up against something which in every respect is immeasurably superior to yourself. And unless you know God, and surrender to God, he will humble you. You can count on it. He will. So verse 8 and 9, look there for a moment. Haman, excuse me, 7. Haman answered the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe. Remember now, at this, mo- this point, Haman thinks, who's going to get this? I am. So is, it, is he going to make it really good? Well, of course he is, because all he cares about is himself. So the king says, what do you think I ought to give this man that I want to honor, Haman? Like, you know, I want to honor you, Haman. What do you want? That's what Haman's thinking. So he says, well, king, here's what I would do. Verse 7, 8. Put a royal robe which the king has worn and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Let this robe and this horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, whom the king, let that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square, proclaim before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Now notice what Haman says. You want to honor somebody, King Xerxes? You give him a crown that you've worn, royal crest, and a robe that you've worn, and a horse that you've ridden. In other words, let, and then let him be paraded around while they're paraded throughout the city square while they're, they're announcing that this is the man whom the king delights to honor. In other words, let him ride around like he's the king. In Haman's mind, that's all he wanted was to be what? I want to be king. I am king. So give me a royal crown, give me a robe that the king has worn, give me a horse that the king rides, and let me ride around in front of everybody and have them bow down before me like you've been, Mordecai would not do, and parade me in front of everybody. Praising me. Now verse 10. 
Then the king Xerxes said to Haman, Hurry, take the robe and the horse as you suggested, and do so for Mordecai the Jew. Uh-oh. Now, I'll come back to that. Who sits within the king's gate. Notice the exclamation point. Mordecai, I really want to do this for Mordecai, the Jew, exclamation point. Leave nothing undone of all that you've spoken. In other words, that's great, Haman. That is a great idea. I want you to do everything you just said with the crown and the robe and the horse, and I want you to do it for Mordecai, the Jew. Haman had to be thinking, this is Randy. This is not scripture. This is Randy. So you can throw this away on your way out. I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, you know what, Haman? That's pretty funny, Xerxes. You got a good sense of humor. I like that. You're going to find out pretty soon it ain't a joke. Not a joke. I want you to do it. I want you to do it for Mordecai the Jew. Now look at verse 11. So Haman took the robe and the horse, and he arrayed Mordecai, and he led him on horseback through the city square, and he proclaimed beforehand, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. For just a moment, even though we don't want to, put yourself in the sandals of Haman. What would have been more humiliating for you than this moment? Can't think of one. I've got to let that Jew that I hate, I've got to put that robe on him. I've got to put him on that horse. I've got to put that crown on him. And I am personally got to lead him around the city square and proclaiming that the king delights in Mordecai, my hated enemy. Life is a choice. You can humble yourself before God or you can be humbled by God. And Haman is experiencing the latter right now. You want to be God, Haman? Here's what I need you to do. I'm going to show you you're not God. I am. So he's trapped by his own plot. Verse 12. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house mourning with his head covered. The contrast. Mordecai goes back. He's, he's seen the favor of the king. He just goes back to his place at the gate. But, but Haman, there's my favorite word, but Haman, he went to his house mourning with his head covered, and that literally means deep sorrow like somebody has died. Because now Mordecai apparently is the king's favorite, not Haman. And I love verse 13. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. This is his wife. And his closest advisors, now you got to understand what we've learned about Haman. He's the prime minister, and everybody pretty much falls, bows before him, and does exactly what he says. Even his wife, which is unusual. But he goes back home, gets his wife and all his yes men to gather around him. What's he wanting to hear from them? Don't worry about it. We'll figure out some way to fix this. You know, Xerxes, you could, he'll do what you tell him to do. We just got to figure out what, we, what do they say to him. If this Mordecai is a Jew and he told us that he is, you're in trouble. You have no hope. Remember the book of Job and all that Job went through? And Job was a righteous man. 
What did his own wife say to him? Curse God and die. But here, his friends, his wife, there's no hope. God, the God of the Jews, is unbeatable. The hand, providential hand of God. One of the reasons this is important, you've got to remember these Jews are still in Persia. Babylon became Medo-Persia. Who had been the number two man in Babylon and Medo-Persia for the last 70 years? Daniel. And all the wise men worked for Daniel. And if you read the book of Daniel, king after king after king, both in Babylon and in the Medo-Persian Empire, they all bowed down before it was over with to the God of Daniel and said the God of the Hebrews is God. So the message here is if Mordecai is a Jew and that's that God of Daniel's that we're talking about, you're in trouble. You can't beat that God because he really is God. He ain't like Xerxes. He ain't like our gods. He really can do things. He really is God. They stood out. They stood out. Now notice again on your handout, pride goes before a fall. Verse 14, while they were still talking with Haman, the king's eunuchs came and they hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. In a couple of weeks we're going to get into that and see what happens. So as we close out our time together today, I want to read you a quote from Tony Evans. Tony Evans is a pastor that I read and admire and respect in Dallas. Basically retired now. He's written tremendous stuff over the years. I've mentioned him to him before. But I want to end this today just reading you this quote from Tony Evans. I want to challenge you to live under the providential hand of God even when it looks like it's not working out. To humbly go before him and confess, I don't know what to do, and I'm afraid, but I'm going to trust you. Esther was afraid, but she acted. Even though you think something should have happened long before now, remember that God is doing a series of things at the same time because his kingdom is bigger than just you. You're not the kingdom. You are a representative in the kingdom to be used by the king for the kingdom's advancement in his perfect timing end quote and I love that I love the message of understanding providence that God just reminds you from time to time in different ways that he's God he is control he is in control he will take care of you in his time and in his way and I could share you many examples and just with all that Mary has been going through since last fall, and I won't go back get specific again, but we have, God has shown us on several different occasions, uh, two of them miraculously, that he's at work and he's going to solve this problem. And sometimes, to be frank, my faith wasn't what it should have been. The, the, the Bible has one thing. In the book of Habakkuk, above all else, the righteous live by faith. 
We trust God because he proved himself, has proven himself over and over and over to be God. It looked like the Jews were gone. And God said, no. I'll use Haman, who was going to kill him. I'll use Haman to get him set free. You bow your heads, please. Father, as we prepare to close out our time together today, we simply pray and thank you that you allow us to be representatives of the kingdom, that you're the king, we serve you. We, we are grateful for the privilege. Pray we would take it seriously, that we would stand every day, awake to a new day, and say, all right, Lord, how today can I honor you? How today can I serve you? How today can I serve someone else? And just see what you're going to do. Ask for opportunities and just watch you work. We thank you for who you are, that you're God, that you love us, you're going to take care of us. And Lord, as we think about Jesus entering into Jerusalem and the crowds just adoring him, and less than a week later, slaughtering him at their behest were the Romans. Yet all he did was love us and die for us. Lord, we thank you that he rose from the dead. And we celebrate that, not just today, but even looking forward to, to next Sunday as we celebrate that great resurrection morning. I pray every day would be a new life day for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stay.